Hello, everybody. Uh, um, yeah, you, got, you guessed it. I'm still John Atak. And um, today we have the treat of uh, talking with my dear friend and colleague, Hoyt Richards. Hi, Hoyt. Hey, John. Good to see you as always. Have yeah, you been? it is. It, it, it's terrible. It's terrible, you know, enjoying this so much. I, you know, it's not meant to, <laughs> it's meant to be hard, you know, meant to be difficult life. You know, not meant to enjoy it. There's a wonderful um, line in a Björk song where she says, it's not meant to be a struggle uphill. <laughs> Talking of life, you know. Oh, yeah. And it's not. It's not. Though I don't think it's actually meant to be anything personally. It's just. Well, oh, yeah. I, 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 I wish there was a life guidebook, but uh, it doesn't, I haven't been able to find that issue out there, you know. Yeah. Yeah, and and when you do, I mean, there are things like Maimonides, the Guide of the Perplexed, which is an excellent eleventh-century textbook on how to live your life. Um, I didn't manage to get all the way through it, but um, he starts with the first paragraph. So this is nearly a thousand years ago, and he says, of course, when it says in Torah in the Old Testament that man is created in the image of God, it doesn't mean anything physical, right? Yeah. You know, Wow, there's some insight. But and the Tao Te Ching, that's always quite a good guide. But the, yeah, I, I've been so reading this. Have you, you ever read Marcus Aurelius? Uh, yes, I have bits and pieces. I, yeah, among the Stoics, I prefer Epictetus, the Greek, or oh, okay. the Chinese Jiang Su, because Marcus Aurelius, although his stoicism seems to me a oh god we just have to put up with it sort of <laughs> attitude whereas epictetus and john <laughs> are saying yeah isn't it brilliant being alive you know i prefer that attitude like well, i guess because he was an emperor and all you know in this position of power um mm. it's a fascinating and starred in gladiator of course yeah yeah exactly and uh and and it's fascinating to see someone you know i mean this the the, the manual whatever the book came about because it was his own, his own personal diary of his thoughts that he wanted to remind himself of how to be a better person and how to not abuse his power and how to kind of remember that he's in service of others and not to control him because you know, he's in that time and era where everyone just kind of pilfered and indulged and took advantage and so Pretty much it, like now yeah yeah no it is remarkable how much things haven't changed i mean we do obviously i'm dealing with the translation I, I i don't know what the original might be uh you know in particular but it's very very it resonates with a lot of me uh, yeah i thought it was very powerful a friend of mine suggested it i've enjoyed that isn't it true that that there's a co-author and the co-author was marcus aurelius's slave oh i didn't know that no that was i didn't see no so enslaving other well, people was fine yeah but as yeah. long as you did it in an ethical way, oh, only beat them three times a day. Oh my goodness! Or at least not on, on coordinated time, so they knew when it was coming, right? Yeah, uh, that's it. Yeah, fair warning. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, right. So we we um, yeah. Do, should we talk about the uh, I got out storytelling? Yes, I thought we should. Yeah, that sounds I, fascinating. Yeah, I was just there uh, uh, last. Uh, weekend a week ago um and my role in this was to be the MC. so um but the, i got out the organization which uh i'm on the board of directors and uh the whole the whole premise is for people to have a safe forum to tell their stories they can do it either um anonymously or you know you know with their own ownership mm -hmm. and and this was the first 
kind of live event where we actually had given people like five to seven minutes to perform their story in whatever way they they thought suited them best. Some people read a poem, some people sang a song, some people did you know told their story in kind of a stand up kind of comedian kind of way. That, and, that's certainly the way I try to approach it. Yeah. And uh, and it was really, and, and and I'll tell you, besides the courage it took, and a lot of people had never gone public before, which I thought was really, really mm. wonderful to witness. And I found the, it was a sold out crowd. It wasn't a large space, but probably 120 people or so. Mm. And uh, it was like a, an improv place in uh, St. Louis. And um, it was fascinating to watch how, uh, supportive the crowd was and and I don't know how much of the crowd was people who were supporting people they knew in there or people who had just come off the the street and had heard about it some way or mm -hmm. another I mean it was one of the things we talked about afterwards I said I probably would have been helpful to try to determine how well because we had done some press and, and a couple articles have been written about it so there might have been walk-ins and there might have been people actually lending support to friends they knew that were you know going out on stage mm -hmm. but people came from all over the country and um, I just thought it was a it was an interesting thing to not only witness because you know obviously there's a lot of tension that goes into doing anything public you know um, uh, you know they they talk about public speaking being one of the most challenging things that anybody ever does and which I I personally now find very strange I, I used to find it really difficult when I you know when I first came to this kind of work at the age of twenty eight being in a room with 20 people and you know having them want me to say things and now oh look at me yeah well and, and i think i think it is a, a um a result of repetition and, and experience i really do and and so uh, you know you know having been someone who's been telling my story for almost two decades now i'm not close to you but you know it's it's you are close to me hoyt well yeah uh, thank you john uh but it's yeah it, it was interesting to kind of see and and remember what it's like to finally go in front of people and and mm. you know a live audience too i mean that's you know when i when i went public the very first time i did it on like a television show where you know I, they interviewed me for 45 minutes and it ended up being like a a three or four minute clip you know, and of course they, you know, they, they edited it to their agenda and it was not a very pleasing experience to kind of witness where, what it ended up being, what, what went public. But, um, but it was, you know, my baptismal fire of, of realizing that it's never going to go perfect. You know, you, you, you can't control these things ultimately, and you certainly can't control how people are going to react. And, um, and I think, um, you know, it, it's a very brave thing that you just at, at a certain point have to choose to embark um, and hopefully for reasons that feel healthy to you. I mean, yeah. I, I can really say from, from my point of view, like, like I encourage anyone to tell their story in whatever capacity they feel comfortable in. And, mm -hmm. and, and usually that would be just confiding in a friend, maybe confiding in a family member. You may, even, I've, I mean, I've had extraordinary conversations with people at airports because I know I'm Me never, missing, you know, <laughs> and there's this safe zone to like interact with a human and, and know there's going to be no ripple effect mm -hmm. to the words you're speaking potentially, at least that you're going to experience in your own life directly. And um, and so I just think it's one of these things of where um, that journey of learning to confront your trauma, take ownership of it, and 
through that mechanism of kind of dealing with it, you start to hopefully recognize that your only solution that I've been able to determine is to find some way to communicate what you went through with someone else other than like the self-reflection is a huge part of it, but then you need to get it out in some way and, and mm -hmm. communicate to others and try to get some some kind of litmus test from someone else's reaction of how you're how they're hearing it or or you discovering that you didn't tell it very well and there's a better way to tell it and, and to investigate well how, what's a better way for me to communicate mm -hmm. what I felt or what I experienced and I think that whole process facilitates a ton of healing and uh, I mean it may get messy at first because um, you know the you know, the, you know, it just, you just don't know what you're doing a little bit and you're nervous and you're scared and those sort of things. But as you and I, you know, and we've talked about this in the past about dealing in absolutes and, and, and how, you know, um, destructive that can be and, and have that kind of dualistic way of thinking. But I can't say I've discovered one absolute that I feel confident in expressing. And that is if you've experienced trauma, which I think None of, no, none of us go through life without doing, uh, you know, some form of that. We, we all get born and, and that's quite yeah. difficult. Yeah. And, and, and if you make the choice to not, you know, deal with your trauma, then I can pretty much guarantee you will not heal. So I think that's the only absolute I feel confident really standing by. Uh, but I do feel if you do start to investigate and deal with it and take ownership of it, um, it might be a little bumpy at the beginning, but ultimately things will move around and you'll start to learn. And ultimately this trauma, which many of us tend to run from or carry a lot of shame around, can actually become this resource of information that can become a source of empowerment Yes, by making that choice to, to take ownership of it. So mm. I'd be curious to get your thoughts about how you think about people telling their story, owning their story, you know, how to do it, you know, when to go public and those sort of things. I thought it would be nice to have a little discourse about that. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, it's a really important area. I think the first thing is, you know, I, I couldn't agree more that, that by telling our story, we understand ourselves. We understand what's happened to us and trying to, you know, I can understand that if you've been in the hands of torturers, and some cult members have been in the hands of torturers, that you yeah. really don't want to reflect upon that. You really don't want to re-experience that. And so the tendency is to push it away. And that's understandable. Um, I've long advocated um, Ronnie Janoff Bullman's uh, book, Shattered Assumptions, and which is, you know, she's a genius. Um, the insight that she has into recovery I found, you know, and I came to it having been working around that field for two or three decades by that time. But here's somebody who understands that. So, for example, she talks about denial and she says, well, maybe denial's a normal, healthy process to, to go. No, I'm not going to talk about it. I'm not going to think about it because a person may not be ready. So that's the first stage that it might yeah. be difficult. But as you say, Self-reflection is one thing, and we can tie ourselves in awful knots trying to work out on our own what happened. Right. If you can then find somebody sympathetic, and the first quality is somebody who can listen and who doesn't want to tell you what to think or give you advice about you, or worst of all, tell you how stupid you were to, to get involved. Right. Uh -huh. 
as our, as our friend, good friend Yuval Laor says, you know, joining a cult is like stepping in dogmas. That's it. There's the blame. You know, you, you, you put your foot in the wrong place. It, right. So, you know, I've, I've met people who, you know, 30 years after leaving were still going, why was I so stupid? And it's like, you just weren't looking at the ground, you know, that moment yeah. your attention was somewhere else. And the mechanisms involved in getting us to belong to a group, which we've also talked about, are so elaborate and our need right. to belong is so strong. And our, especially, you know, when, when I was, I, I used to be young and foolish. I'm now old and foolish. And, <laughs> but it, it's given me the advantage of experience to be able to say, well, maybe there isn't a purpose to the universe. Maybe there isn't meaning in human activity. Maybe we're just being arrogant about who we are and what we are. So this thought that there's somebody there who can tell me how to live is always going to be false because in the end, um, as the Buddhists say, you have to lose the desire to become Buddha. You have to let go of all of the teaching, everything that's been put on you, if you are going to be free. And it's mm -hmm. a matter of how quickly you can get to that. And I think that integrating and digesting your bad experiences and learning from them, you know, what could be more important, you know, to yeah. integrate this into your life? And, and make something useful of it. So find somebody who's sympathetic or do it anonymously. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, which is, you know, that's a tremendous benefit of the internet. It's yeah. not actually as safe as most people think it is. You know, your anonymous tag can be traced back to your IP number if right. you're not very careful. Right. Um, but unless you're, you know, coming from a very vindictive group that's going to hunt you down, and there are thankfully, only a small number of those, but they do exist. Unless you're going to be hunted down, then going on the, on you know right. the web somewhere onto a, a forum, a message board, and 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 talking about experience. For most people, for the vast majority of people, it's cathartic. It makes them feel yeah. better. And and then going the next stage, which is where for you and I. You know, I, I certainly don't feel traumatized by my experience in Scientology. I never have, though, whereas your yeah. experience was deeply traumatizing. You know, the whole yes. Experience yes. thing, you know, yeah. nothing like that happened to me. But yeah. for almost everyone I've met, that there is that trauma to deal with. And there's this idea of, you know, um, EMDR, that by, you know, watching a finger, you can get over trauma and it comes out of you know, hypnotherapy out of ericksonian and neurolinguistic programming and things like that and i get that it it might be helpful in reducing the traumatic response and is therefore a good thing but i still hang on to the thought that until i've understood something until i've integrated and digested it i haven't actually overcome it i'm just mm. shoving it somewhere else I know many, many people who've walked out of a group and said, I'm done with that. It's over. Um, yeah. For example, Kerry Gleason. Kerry was the executive director international of Scientology, which you know, as far as we knew, meant he was running it. He wasn't. Hubbard was running it. Um, and he was junior to the watchdog committee. But nonetheless, he was a very high ranking Scientologist. Mm -hmm. And I finally got him. He was in England. I got him to come and have dinner 
and uh, we had dinner. It was very nice, and I started the interview, and it was a very short interview. I said, so what do you think about Scientology now? And he said, it's shit. And that was his whole statement. Now, th th there's a little bit of a problem here. At the time, he was earning his living selling Ron Hubbard's management ideas. Oh, my goodness. So you've yeah. got this, this conflict yeah. in the guy. And seeing that, seeing if you don't face it, or Scientologists would say confront it, if you don't mm -hmm. face it, it doesn't go away. It's still sat in the corner of the room. You've, you've put a blanket over it, but the beast is still there. And there will be times when it will afflict you. There will be times when yeah. it will bite you. And the more remote you make it and the less willing you are to face it, the more dangerous it becomes. So I think it is important. It's also important to get a balance and to not spend your time living yeah. in a mess. Yeah. Know? have exactly. real life good experiences get that working too you know i one of the things you said that really resonates with me is um you know when you're trying to find um a compassionate person to talk with initially you know and, and, I, and it's one of the things i i feel like i've learned <clears throat> through life and certainly dealing with my own experience and trauma that i always picture it as when, when someone's going through something that that you can relate to on some level um and they're and they're basically just describing that they feel stuck in this hole of, of sorts you know um and they don't know the way out you know you know most people think oh well then here let me show you the ladder so you can get out and and uh and that's a really not, not my cult. yeah yeah it's like it's and, and what i found is what's the most useful to anyone is like you said, listen, being able to listen and then also do your best to put yourself in the same hole with them and basically say, Hey, doesn't it suck down here? This is terrible. It really is. And actually this reminds me of a time when I was in the hole, you know, of sorts, and this is how I dealt with it, you know? And, and so you're not giving a person solutions. You're just identifying with the feelings and with the, 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 the sense of this um, almost hopelessness that you experience when you're kind of in that yeah, kind of despair and recognize you're not alone and that it seems to be not only part of the human experience or, or uh, condition, but it's only temporary too. You yeah. know, you, you, can, you can speak from the point of view of, hey, I've been there. Hey, you know, it was hard, it sucked. But I found my way out by doing this and that, you know, or, or this is what I found was helpful for me when I was dealing with these sort of feelings. Mm -hmm. And you just kind of you share space and hold space for that person mm -hmm. so they feel comfortable telling their story. And that's a huge thing and not necessarily an easy type of person to find at first, because I think, you know, especially when you're um if you're talking to guys you know you know men in general want to be problem solvers and and so they just you know well tell me what it is and i'll and i'll fix it and uh and that's not necessarily what you need at that time um no. so it can it can be a bit challenging to find those type of people but i think that's where you get things moving a little bit and you uh and you start to you know, i think it's 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 the benefit of therapy you know we talk about self-reflection the way we talk to ourselves in our self-reflective way can be very different of an, of an experience when we actually articulate what we're thinking inside our head to someone else 
when it comes out of our mouth, we're like, oh my God, do I really look at it that way? Because something about hearing it out loud creates an opportunity to kind of identify our thoughts in a different way than if we just keep them in our head. And I don't mm -hmm. know if you've had that experience as well. Every day. That, yeah. that I find it it's really important to express what I think. It's really important to express what I believe, whether I write it down or I speak it. And, and they're different pathways and require, mm -hmm. you know, we, th there's recent work that, that, that is, as is pushing against the idea that there are, you know, Wernicke's and Broca's area in the brain and they determine meaning and grammar that, that there's now work saying that actually language is a whole brain experience mm -hmm. and which seems right to me in the same way that memory is is a whole brain experience it's not just there's a place where there's a little memory and you pull it out the whole right. brain or you know various areas of the brain of the 200 brain regions are collaborating mm -hmm. to, to make this thing and i unfortunately have quite often found that when i'm talking about something that I, I realize I haven't understood it. You know, there's some, you know, and, and often that sometimes it's because somebody will ask me a pertinent question. And sometimes it's because I'll get halfway into saying something and go, actually, is that true? <laughs> you know, is yeah. that, do I really yeah. understand what's going on here? So articulating yeah. something's very important. I think another aspect of this, which I've advocated now for you know, nearly 40 years, is that small groups of well-meaning former members getting together um and i mean small you know under a dozen mm -hmm. people sitting together whether you do it through zoom or, or in in the room and talking about their experiences but also talking about the beliefs and this is something that all too often doesn't seem to be considered in recovery that and the question is, what do I still believe? Yeah. And yeah. to extricate yourself from a belief system is like the Benjamin Franklin pros and cons thing. That if you think everything that happened to you is bad and evil and everything you believed was wrong, then you probably are in a difficult place. If you yeah. still believe that it's all right, you're definitely in a difficult yeah. place. And it and sorting that out takes away the control that the belief system will otherwise continue to have so if, you know if i'm asked by by therapists how they should approach cult members it's well firstly you deal with the cultic shell you deal with the identity or pseudo identity that's been created by the group because otherwise you're counseling that identity yeah. so somebody is still passing all the information through the cult's ideas so getting somebody to the first breakthrough which is saying the cult leader said this and also this which contradicts it that's mm. quite an important one in in going oh so the cult leader is fallible and it's the fallibility right. that becomes significant or the cult leader you know reported this as factual which isn't so yeah. bringing the cult leader down to a, a human level and then being able to question the dogma um if the, the reason i came back in 2013 after 17 years away from the, the cult field you know, mm -hmm. um, I wasn't completely away because I was studying terrorism and gangs and, right. and writing novels about these things. But 
I was no longer the historian of Scientology. I was no longer dealing with ex-members. I came back because I realized that unaided, there is a tendency for the beliefs to persist, you know, even when you've undone the words. Last week, I had a call from a guy who, who grew up in Scientology and who left it um, in the last century and was sure that he'd got rid of it all and then saw something I'd said about the suppressive person doctrine in Scientology. And he said he had to sit down because he'd thought this thing was completely out of his head and he realized yeah. there was still a concept there. Um, and so being willing to question, being willing to challenge, but that can be definitely much more effective in a group of people as long as you don't have an expert in the room. I mean, when I tried to do this, I was the problem because people looked to me, you know, as a somewhat of a know-it-all, smart aleck, whatever you want. Right, but right. because I have such an incredible reservoir of facts about Scientology that, that they want me to say something. So don't, don't let me in the room. That's the first right. thing. Unless you want to pay me a lot of money, of course. <laughs> Which nobody does, you know, for some reason. So, yeah, having a discussion group, you know, having a small group of friends and also learning about active listening. That, yeah. that, that's probably the only thing that I would underline as coming from, from therapy. Um, actually, there'll now be 10 or 15 more, but that being able to reflect back to somebody and say so you know if you don't feel you understand what they're saying being able to go so are you telling me this or, or could you put that right. in way or but showing that you're engaged with what they're saying and if you're not engaged with what they're saying leave them alone you know so there's one thing is talking to help yourself recover and the other is helping others to talk to recover yeah. and and as you say uh, john gottman who's done phenomenal work on couples uh, over the many decades, uh, had the, the couples lab at his mm. university. And, and he came to this, this thing, he wrote about children and he said, you know, with your kids, rather than kind of lecturing them and telling them what's what, let them tell you what they're experiencing to the extent that children are able to do yeah. that. And then find a time you made the same mistake and tell them about that say oh yeah, uh, yeah when i was such and such i did this and this is how i got out of it you know right. and right. you know but allowing some kind of parity rather than talking down to people exactly. and allowing this concept which, which for me is very strong that that i am very happy to give people advice i'm very happy if they don't follow it and i'm not going to blame them for not following it mm -hmm. i'm will often ask for advice and then I'll annoy somebody by telling them I'm not going to take it. You know, that I've, I've, it's been very useful to me to hear yeah. their point of view, but I will make the decision about what I do. The, the, you know, the simple parallel to that is when I'm working as an editor on, on somebody else's book, I make it clear at the start that I'm going to be absolutely savage. I'm not going to be polite. I'm mm -hmm. going to say, this is how I do it. I'm not going to call them names, probably, right. yeah. especially if they're paying me a lot of money, which they aren't. Um, but I am going to just be absolutely brusque, blunt, right. straightforward, correct 
or change what I want. But they're still the author. If at the end right. of the day, they want to ignore everything I've said, I'm not going to come back to the book and tell them off. <laughs> right. No, of course. They're, they're still the boss. And yeah. keeping that in mind in any relationship that, that the person recovering needs to become the boss, that they've had that, you know, the locus of power has been taken from them. So they need to be able to be in charge of their own thoughts and their own decisions and their own mistakes going forward. Yeah. You know, so not getting into an authoritarian, you know, we have a little group of people and somebody becomes the leader and is telling everybody else what to do. No, right. bad idea. Yeah. You know, it, it's interesting because, you know, I think of, you know, these, I, I think what you're recommending is, is great if the opportunity is there, you know, if you get a chance. Like I know for me, um, the first 15 years of my recovery were, were very challenging because I, any ex-member that I reached out to was not in the place where I was. So they were still indoctrinated. So um, I spent the first 15 years thinking, God, am I the only one that thinks this thing was a cult? Like maybe I'm the crazy one, right? And and I found that to be very challenging. And in the last more half a dozen years, I've found, you know, maybe four or five people who I've been able to talk to who've kind of come come through their own path and now at a place where we can kind of have that kind of discourse. Um, but I think, you know, one of the, the challenges you're, you know, uh, that you're up against and you, you alluded to this and what you were talking about is, you know, the, the getting out of the black and white thinking, you know, the, you know, the, the so much of the cultic control is in that thinking in those absolutes and saying something at, at one moment can be determined to be right or wrong or good or bad or evil or, uh, you know, you, you know, or, or uh, you know, ugly or beautiful. And it, and and until you kind of have more of like what you're saying, more of a group context where you can kind of recognize that there's just shades of gray and, and that even events you all shared and witnessed as a group, so to speak, you may have all processed it in very different ways. And and there's nuances to it. And, and a lot can be determined in, in, in essence by the trauma you brought in before you even got involved with the group. So you've just got a different lens at looking at the world that way. Um, you know, and I find, you know, so much of this is is the challenge in just finding the way to communicate because very often, you know, and we learned this also, I learned this as, as you know, as a performer, as an actor, you know, that what you're always trying to do is affect someone. You know, you, you're, you're trying in essence to, communicate something and get a result that will tell you, oh, they've heard what I'm trying to say in the way I'm intending it to be heard, rather than just, oh, I need to say it so I feel I've been clear with what I'm saying. So if I'm just worried about articulating in a way that I feel is clear, but I'm not worried about how it lands on the other person, mm -hmm. potentially I'm not communicating very well at all mm -hmm. because my focus is really just, well, how do I say this in a way where I feel most best represents what I am feeling or what I experienced, but I'm not looking at, is it landing on you in the way that I'm getting the reaction from you that tells me that you're hearing what I and feeling what I want you to feel. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a, a challenge of, of the whole recovery process is, is not only learning and identifying what my feelings are and my thoughts are, 
but how well can I communicate them so I feel like someone else gets that and then we can find hopefully this common ground where like you were talking about and, and I was talking about earlier where you can sit in the hole with that person and say yeah I, I've been in I know what this feels like and I don't want someone standing up out of the hole and, and offering to off, offer me a ladder because they're looking down on me I need someone to sit here with me in the pit so to speak and talk about what it feels like being in the pit and and I think that's what's really you know uh, you know it's a, it's a two handed thing us learning how to communicate better and then finding the people who are receptive to have that kind of conversation. So um, you know it, it's a challenge, but it's one that you know I, I encourage everyone to do because I think it yields incredible benefits from not only learning about how to heal because you start by by talking about things you start to process it differently but also you become a better communicator, which allows you to share your story in a way where you feel it's more authentic. And yes. uh, yeah. I think that's what's, you know, what you're always hoping to do is, you know, I, I think in, in, in these cultic environments, it's very hard to be seen and heard where we feel where, where our, our authentic self is being respected and embraced. Mm-hmm. And, and I think in that healing process, you're looking to, find that in yourself and find others who will hear and see you in that same way where we feel we're we're being represented the way that we want to be represented um not only in the way we're talking about but the way others are perceiving us through the way we're trying to communicate Hmm. yeah Um, and and it and a part of the process of um telling one's story is taking charge of the story which is, of course, taking charge of the past and mm-hmm. integrating the past. I, I was, I, I don't know, it was about 18 or something. And um, I had a conversation with a young woman who, who I didn't know and, and never saw again. And she was very distressed because she'd fallen pregnant. And her father was, by her definition, a gangster. Mm-hmm. And she was terrified, you know, she was not married to the man she'd fallen right and she was terrified and i i made one of those placating sort of i understand statements and she was furious she said how could you possibly understand right and it made me go away and go well you know i after some reflection that that it doesn't you don't have to have had the same trauma as somebody to understand what trauma is right and to to offer that to to be able to say to somebody you know that was you know that's a dreadful experience you had that's absolutely horrifying I mean I remember when you told me about the hot seat and being yeah. sat there and being abused by you know verbally right. by a whole group of people and I immediately of course put it in it's the Chinese brainwashing program it was an aspect mm-hmm. of the thought reform program you know whatever we're we're going to be calling it this week. They called it brainwashing the people who suffered from it. So I'm willing see now the Chinese, I'm willing to go with that. But th- you know, when you describe that to me, my heart sank, you know, th- you know, what a terrible thing to do to somebody. Now I'm not had that happen to me. Mm. I've had people heckle me and I've had people, um, be abusive to me verbally. But in such a controlled situation where you no longer have agency, you are in a room and these people are doing this to you. Uh, and it's torture. It, it's fundamentally torture that you're being subjected. It is, yeah. 
And so what I can offer is exactly this, that I haven't had that experience. It sounds absolutely awful and you didn't deserve it. You know, there's mm. nothing that you did to deserve that. And I think that last bit, we often come away from experiences. It's like when, you know, a kid's parents break up and they, the kid goes, oh, mummy and daddy have broken up because of me. Yeah. And so agency goes to the wrong place. So, so being able to say, you know, this is what happened. This is how it happened. It was wrong. And I didn't deserve it. It's goodwill hunting, isn't it? It's not your fault. It's not That's your right. fault. Is that, no, it's true though. Yeah. It's very powerful when you, when you finally accept that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's one of these things I, I, um, that actually, you, know, you, you mentioned the hot seat and I think it's an interesting thing that, articulate when, when I was just starting coming through my recovery, you know, I was still so embedded from these hot seat experiences where you were. And in that scenario, I would have anywhere from 10 to 15. And sometimes when the group was bigger, it would be even larger. And it was like, it was literally like a verbal assault as led by the cult leader, but everyone had to have their, their kind of verbal stone in their hand, ready to act just to throw it. And if you didn't pile on, um, you got punished or potentially the whole mob would turn on you. All right. So you, you had to always keep a couple stones in your hand, you know, metaphorically to be able to th pile on and throw on that why this person was being so terrible, how their behavior was out of accordance with the so-called principles you're living by and all these sort of things. But the, the thing I experienced when I was on the hot seat of feeling literally um, catatonic because I was so terrified to virtually say anything because anything could make it worse. Yeah. So saying nothing was at least some sense of stability that it couldn't get worse. And I, and I was so convinced that my way of thinking was the problem, right? So, so I was afraid of myself and, and whatever thoughts I would come up with. So I didn't want to verbalize any of them because I thought it might expose and make me look even worse. And trying to understand that process was very hard because you really start to think you're brain damaged on some level because they're asking you kind of these quite almost basic, simple questions from a certain perspective. Uh, you know, why do you do this? You know, you know, are you so you know that things and and, and at, in that mindset. It just feels like words that you can't even put together, you know, and you start thinking, what is wrong with me? Is there, is there something wrong with my brain? Am I brain damaged? And they're even saying things like that to you, you know, that you are maybe somehow mentally, you know, mm. uh, you know, incapacitated in some way. And it wasn't until, uh, and then what would happen would be after I would get through the hot seat, you know, experience, which could be an hour or two, sometimes it could be 10 or 12 hours. I mean, you have marathon sessions where you're just there. But after it was finally over, um, the adrenaline would, would drain from my body and I would start having more clear thoughts. And I'm like, oh my God, I could have said this. I could have said that. Like, what's my problem? Why, why can I just do this, right? Like, like maybe there's something really is wrong with me. Mm -hmm. And then as I was going through, so that, that and, 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 and that's just, you know, that leaves a really deep wound. And when I was going through the recovery, I went to this place, um, uh, the Wellspring, uh, you know, place in uh, Ohio, which no longer exists, unfortunately. 
but they literally explained it to me on a chalkboard where they just said, hey, this is the way the brain works under stress. You know, you have the, the higher cortex, which is your frontal lobe, and then you have the midbrain, and then the, what's it called? The, uh, the limbic system, the old brain. Yeah, exactly. The one that kind of operates, you know, your breathing and things involuntary, all the stuff. So they said, when you are hit with stress, which, you know, a mob coming at you would be stressful, you kick into your fight or flight mode, that midbrain part. And the frontal higher cortex is the one that has all your reasoning abilities, your personality, your 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 problem solving part. So you've kicked into the part of your brain that doesn't access the part that allows you to even articulate or problem solve on any level. And that is what you're experiencing. And that's why the, the thing that I was, you know, having as my, you know, uh, hot seat experience was explained like, oh, you were in a state of such high stress that you couldn't think clearly. Hmm. And that's why when you finally were out of that stress, you could start to think clearly again. So, so it wasn't that you, there was something wrong with you. This, the nature of the environment was the one that created this thing so that you adopted this belief system based on what you experienced, not knowing that there is a physiological reason for why you reacted and felt the way you felt. And that was like a weight going off my shoulders. Like I couldn't believe I'm like, Oh my God, so I'm not brain damaged. There's not something incredibly wrong with me. Like, and, and, and that was such a useful piece of information to get, but I only was able to receive it because I had gotten to the point where I realized I needed help and I needed to start telling people about my story, what I experienced and, and why it was, it was, you know, why it wasn't sitting well with me because I hadn't really told anyone. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and that was a really, really helpful thing. And, and that's why I encourage people so much, like, um, you know, this this choice to go into denial, like you said. I mean, yeah, I, I I've been working on this doc series that um, you know, uh, you know, telling the story of the group that I was involved with, and many of the ex members we reached out to. There, this is two decades out from the time when I dissolved the group because I confronted them and I sued them, and the group kind of dissolved. But the, the majority of the people, when I'm like 95% of them, to have taken that path of denial on some level mm -hmm. and have not in any way healed in 20 years. I mean, actually speaking with them in a strange way is nostalgic because it's like you go, it's like going back in time to the way things were in the cult. There's still the loaded language, there's still the belief system. There's still, and it's like they're stuck in time. Mm -hmm. But I can see how 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 hard it's got to be for them to to live with this because they virtually have never talked with anyone with any conflicting point of view other than you know like-minded people who they've consulted in to kind of keep the mutual de denial and uh, and that to me has been the greatest tragedy of telling my story is that yes i was a lucky one that i kind of figured things out and i want a very uh, you know aggressive recovery path and chose to speak out and become a bit of a, you know, an activist or, you know, an advocate for other survivors. Mm -hmm. But the majority have chosen to run from it. And that's where I really realized the lingering effects of trauma went undealt with how it just, it's like being, it, it, you know, you talk about stepping in a dog's mess. Well, it's like, it's like you never step out of it. Yeah. It's just constantly on your shoes for the rest of your life going forward if you don't choose to deal with it and, and 
and and uh, use the mechanism to wipe off your shoes you know yeah. and, and make sense of it yeah, yeah rather than wondering why nobody wants to be in the same room with you <laughs> right exactly, the, exactly. The, the hot seat thing one one of the things that i came to um i haven't seen him for a long time but my friend arthur bookman who who um is he belonged to a group uh, where that put him in solitary confinement where he didn't see another human being for 12 years what yeah and he composed music in fact for 12 years and and i i had a real push to try and get him to show me this music because i'm fascinated by this thought of yeah he was writing it down he didn't have an instrument to play i don't think but and somehow he maintained his sanity very definitely maintained his sanity but i was talking with him and, and i was talking with um, a woman who'd been in scientology who'd been on the rehabilitation project force and you know the horrors that she described um just these awful things and they were both there at this meeting and i i got them and i said so the way you coped with this was by pretty much establishing a panic room inside yourself so you could dissociate into that numb space and not feel what was going on and they both said yes and yeah we i think it i you know it makes sense you know i come to that by reading about victims of torture um so it makes sense to do that it's a it's a safety precaution and a measure but i think it tends to persist and so when you leave the group, there's still this sense of alienation, of separation from the rest of the world. Often, initially, it's a sense of superiority that you belong to the elite, you know, the people chosen by Rajneesh or Sun Myung Moon or Ron Hubbard right. to be in the, the vanguard of humanity, to use Nixium. Right. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, that can take a while. I had a friend and he was 10 years an executive in Scientology's organization. And he then left and went looking for a job and found he was only qualified to be a builder's laborer, but none of his executive training in Scientology was recognized in the world. And it was a real, you know, he's a good guy. He, you know, he, and he has admitted that, that he was arrogant when he left and he needed to, to come down. And you know, mm -hmm. I'm happy to say that the last I heard from him, he was having a very happy existence. So it said it worked for him, good. but yeah, tying ourselves back into the world through our narrative saying you know that this is um you know hippocrates I'm, I'm told from whom we have the hippocratic oath um said that that a, a medical procedure is not finished until the, the patient has told everybody what happened oh um, interesting have to, oh, yeah. the, the first talking cure oh. long before freud borrowed the expression from somebody else as he tended to do um do we have five minutes to talk about love because we were talking about love and i'm quite interested in yes yes we do we do and and uh and and uh, before we get that i just want to give uh the audience um a footnote they uh there's a there's a doc series called stolen youth which deals with the um uh the guy from uh what's it um sarah lawrence college yeah larry ray yeah, how, exactly. And and in that, you, you know, he was such an egomaniac that he thought he should record everything for posterity. And you actually witness the hot seat. Like he, mm -hmm. you've got someone on the hot seat and you literally 
excuse my French, watch him mind fucking someone where he's convincing people to take responsibility for crimes. And I use that in quotes that they didn't even commit so that they can be kind of have some sort of absolution. And you literally watch and witness it. It is absolutely horrifying, mm -hmm. but it was, you know, it was luckily I, I can't say for myself, it wasn't, you know, uh, triggering um, because I, you know, I feel like I've dealt with a lot of that, but it was, it's like, oh my God, this is the best I've been trying for so long to relay to people what this experience was like. And like, here it is in Technicolor, this is what it's like. So mm -hmm. if people are curious that they haven't had that experience or whatever, I would say, check out that. Not, it's, 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 it's not a great show because not anyone was really healed when they, when they told this story. So it's more of what a lot of these shows end up being You're just witnessing a lot of carnage of the mess that's happened from the cultic experience rather than someone's gone through the tunnel, done some recovery and now has some reflection and kind of can share their lessons learned and the silver lining of the whole thing. So I, you know, it doesn't really have that part, but as far as showing the the hot seat, I think it's, it would be beneficial to, mm -hmm. if you're curious, you yeah, can check good, it out. It's a good but yes, love, love, you know, I, I brought it up because, you know, before we started our, our um, conversation, because I think, you know, obviously we all want to be loved. We all want to be lovable. And, and I know actually it's, it's one of the things I still deal with from my cultic experience. Like, like do, am I lovable? And I, and I really battle that. You are I'm, lovable, Hoyt, definitely. Oh, thank, thank you. Thank you, John. <laughs> and, uh, but it's, yeah, it's, it's really emerged uh, in many different facets of you know i still battle that and mm -hmm. and and one of the things i've learned more recently that you and i were talking about was that that's such a powerful word because you know we want that so badly that when even someone uses it in the form of addressing us and hearing the words that we want to hear when someone says i love you mm -hmm. um and how much impact that can be on us um because the, the I know for myself, the first reaction is to think of it in the terms that I want to hear it in. I'm like, you know, that's what I want to hear. And and I've learned over time, I also need to take into context, well, what does this person mean when they say that? Like, do they mean the same thing that I mean when I say it? Mm -hmm. And 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 very often it's not the same thing. And, and because, and, and you, and, and because of that, you end up having conflicting feelings. Like someone may say, I love you, but the way, if I'm not feeling loved by them, you know, it's, it sends out a, a mixed message to me. Like, so wait, you're saying you love me, but my goodness, I don't really feel loved by you. Or certainly I don't feel good about the way I, I or, or, or aspects of this relationship I'm being treated doesn't feel loving to me, mm -hmm. you know? And, and I think it's really hard to separate the two and say, listen, we're limited by language in that sense. Like it's, it's more about having to go by how does the person behave and how, do the, how does that behavior affect me and how do I feel about it rather than the catch all word, which seems to, you know, just put the seal of approval on it where, where it may not be accurate. And I think that's what's really interesting about trying to find love is we have to kind of figure out for ourselves what it means and, and, and how would it manifest in a way that would really, you know, feel like it, 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 it's what we think of when we think of the word. And, and, you know, and I've had friends, you know, talk about that, like, Oh, just 
write down on the list, you know, of what you'd be looking for in a partner and, and what are the traits and what are the, and, and, and it's, it's a tricky thing. It really is. But I think ultimately it's a feeling and, uh, and, and are, you know, are you feeling heard and seen? And, and I know from me personally, like, like, can I be me and, 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 and all unabashedly warts and all and still feel lovable or, or, you know, some of the conditioning I had, my mother was quite kind of um, domineering in this way. Like, you know, that it was always um, love with a catch. I'll love you as long as you, you know, it's conditional love, right? Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, which, which I think in relationships are, are important. You got to have conditions, but I mean, but ultimately, you know, I think we're looking for acceptance and, and being seen and feeling heard and feeling like we can really be ourselves. And that part is lovable. And, and that's a challenge to find. Mm-hmm. I, I had a period of more than 10 years where, where I wouldn't use the word love mm. uh, because of exactly what you're saying, that that it's you have to understand what the other person means. And so it seemed better for me to say, you know, I have affection, I have liking for somebody, or I have lust for somebody. Yeah. Or right. um to and and the more you know, as time goes by, I've, you know, taken the word back again. I, it's a nice word. But but when um, when I first met Yuval Laor in 2015, and he, within his model, was using the word love. And it was still for me, a, you know, this word has such a breadth of meaning, potentially. What, what do we mean? Right. I, I mean, let me give you an example. A friend of mine, he many years ago, yeah, had a, a baby and the baby would sleep one hour a day. And otherwise, and the parents hadn't realized that they needed to separate rooms so that one of them could sleep one night and the other the next night. So they were both <laughs> trying to look after this baby. And this man, who was a lovely man and a, a brilliant man, one of the cleverest people I've met, he said, um, of course, I love my son, but I don't like him. <laughs> <laughs> and it was the first time that that differentiation had occurred to me that that you could actually mm. feel that obligation of love, but but dislike the person you were loving. Mm. And um, you know, my first child was born at the same time as his. I have four now, and I understand the, <laughs> the distinction between liking <laughs> and loving much better. So, well, I'll, I'll give you a quick antidote. The Italians say when when your children are infants. They're just so cute. You wish you could eat them. And by the time they're teenagers, you, you wish, wish you had. <laughs> yeah. So I, I've heard that, you know, so you, you're a parent. And I, you, I'm sure you can identify. Yeah. 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 Um, and I mean, Aaron Beck, um, the founder of cognitive therapy, which has morphed off into cognitive behavioral therapy, not the same thing. Um, but I, and I still quite like Beck's approach to it, but I was introduced to him through a book called Love is Never Enough um, about 30 years ago. And while as a therapy for couples, which is, I think, what it was meant to be, it, I'm not sure it's the best thing. I think John Gottman had, had better ideas. But nonetheless, his explanation that, you know, you will have certain expectations that come from your family background and your life. And the person you're meeting will have different expectations. You then have the problem of mind reading, the expectation that you'll know yeah. how the person is thinking and feeling. And these things can be so incredibly different. Yeah. Um, 
you know and so resolving what the conditions of love are is important um and i you know i constantly refer back to the art of loving by eric from um as a manual that i think probably everybody should read along yeah. with jang su that's a good thing to read too um but it, he has this story yeah about you know if you want to be a painter then um going well when i see the right subject i will paint it but you have to learn how to paint and i think love's absolutely that for me one of the greatest challenges of my life i went on a, a formal intervention uh all back in 1991 and mm. i was sleep deprived for a week it was the first time that had ever happened to me <laughs> it's a commonplace for other people but not for me and we were successful. We were tremendously harassed. There were seven carloads of Scientologists. They'd found out where we were. We were under observation every day. We had to skip that. We found ourselves involved with with this guy who was very helpful, who'd been part of the counter-terrorist um, section of the Special Boat Squadron, which is like mm. the SAS, uh, called 14 Int. And so every day we were going, four days, we were going through this cloak and dagger thing of they, they knew where we were, but they didn't know where the person we were talking and they never did. And it, it got pretty scary. And it threw me into a position when I got home that I questioned everything. Mm. You know, I, why do I believe what I believe? What's going on? And I started, you know, things started to creak a little in my mind. And I came to, I call them uh, unquestionable assumptions. And my unquestionable assumption came from infancy and the idea being brought up in the Christian church, that I should love everybody. Everybody, I should love them. Mm. And for three days, I remember, you know, vividly still, I went through this process of going, well, of course, that's true. That's right. You know, I mustn't question that. I mustn't challenge that. And eventually I did challenge it. And I said, mm. Mm, I don't want to deliberately harm anyone but I am under no obligation to love Pol Pot, Hitler, yeah. you know, yeah, right. or, or right. quite a lot of other people actually. Yeah. And, yeah. and it puts me at a weak point. You know, if I'm desperately trying to help people who are Machiavellian and right. psychopathic in their behavior. So, but it, I bring that up as a, you know, what is love and what do we mean by love? And the, in the Christian, you have, caritas you have agape you have these different forms of love which i think is 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 real uh, apparently when um, john bowlby left the freudian fold and developed attachment theory uh, and there's an overlap in those periods which is quite interesting and he said well yeah he said to his wife well what what should i call this and and she said well it's love <laughs> And he's like, oh, no, I can't use that word. Let's call it <laughs> attachment, you know. Yeah. And it is about that. And it does say that there are these four different kinds of attachment that could be seen as four different kinds of love. Um, Alex Stain does a very good job in, um, is it, where has it gone? Terror, love and brainwashing. And it's down here somewhere. It's... Uh, Terror, love, oh, it is called terror, love and brainwashing. There you go. Oh, there she you talks go. about, oh, I remembered something. She talks about disorganized attachment, this idea that the person that you're dependent upon for your comfort is also the person who's abusing you. So the parent, he says, oh, come here, come here, come here, I love you, and slaps you when you arrive. And 
which I absolutely accept. You know, I personally separate out attachment theory as it applies to children and as it applies to adults. I think we have to be careful not to mix those things up. But I think she's right that in adulthood you can create a dependent relationship where the person that you're loving, the cult leader that you love, yeah, may in their own terms love you, but their own terms are narcissistic and they right. will exploit no. you, you know. Oh God, that's so on point, John. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, I, I think again, because that, again, that I, that would be a great example of me going back to that statement of someone saying they love you, and 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 that was part of the you know they called that the love bombing phase, right? Where where you know I came into the group and everyone's like, oh, we love you so like right off the bat. I don't even know these people. Yeah, but hearing that was so intoxicating. I mean, it's one of those things that. Um, yeah, people don't, we're not coached when we're young, that feeling good too fast is potentially a red flag. And, yes. and the love bombing is like, you listen, you could have wonderful parents who tell you they love you all the time and are encouraging, but still when, when, when you get it that much by that many different people, you start thinking it's like, it's like, you know, mainlining a drug and, uh, and, and, and without knowing that that was potentially dangerous, it just felt fantastic. You know, I, I try, try to, tell people that the indoctrination process, um, once it kind of hits full swing, is tied to incredibly positive emotional state. You know, you think you're you're discovering the truth, you're finding your tribe, you're finding your purpose, you know, all these sort of things are incredibly exhilarating. And, and that's why it's so hard to see through the mess, you know, afterwards, because you're so excited for what you signed up for, you know, it took me 20 years to figure out what I signed up for when I was actually involved were, were you know, you know, light years apart. Diametrically but, opposite. Yeah, but I but I got there, you know, and, and and that's where I realized, and we've talked about this, you know, many times. It's one of my favorite points we address is to to figure out what happened to you very often requires recognizing that you did have the wool pull over your eyes, you know, and that's why my my new favorite quote is it's a much easier to fool a person than to convince a person they've been fooled and that's really where the the rubber meets the road and and unless you have the humility to admit to yourself that you kind of got taken and conned um you, you just don't give yourself much opportunity to start that healing process and that that love bombing stuff is is really really intense when you can't separate well what are they doing or how are they treating me compared to really what I interpret loving behavior to be and what loving behavior to, to, uh, to feel like, you know, when I, when I, and all those sort of things, it's, you know, that word is just very powerful, can be very manipulative. And, um, and we all on some level want to hear it, but um, very often uh, it can be expressed in a way that might not be productive or counter, you know, counter to what we actually and, you know associate with that word and um and that takes some investigation which i encourage us all yeah. to do yeah and, and i think it, talking with the people you love about what they mean by love yeah. so you know the idea that people who love you are, are going to sit for hours throwing stones at you in the hot seat well forgiveness is is an aspect of of love redemption is an aspect of love and there's sort of yeah, the conditions that as long as you keep giving us money, as long as you keep, you know, no. Yeah. And as you say, if, you know, 
if, if there's one thing, and there requires a lot of things, but if there's one thing that I could get over to the coming generation, it would be when somebody pretends to be your best friend, they're pretending. When somebody you don't know comes up to you and starts telling you how wonderful you are, there are various possibilities. A, they suffer from bipolar disorder and they're mm. in a manic phase and they love everybody. B, right. they've taken too much MDMA and then mm. they, they're loved up. C, right. they have, they're psychopaths and they want to control you. Right. And, and D, yeah, they, they've become infatuated with you, but that's not a good thing. Right. So none of these things are healthy. And yeah. also you have to separate out that, you know, uh, psychopaths can be charming. Well, actually, yeah, all right, they can. Um, but to then reject anybody who's charming, to reject anybody who's generous, anybody who's pleasant because you are suspicious. Well, actually, at the beginning of a relationship, it's probably a good idea to be cautious. And when yeah. you've realized that somebody really is what they say they are, they really are a good person who, who seeks to do good, or if they have a track record, you know, I, you and I are in this enviable position that we've spent so long doing this, <laughs> that it, yeah. you know, it's hard to, to throw yeah. those stones at us because we can point to the past and say, well, I, I did this, you know, yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah. Sure. Um, but, but yeah, Doing that little process of accounting and finding out from somebody, you know, even straight up saying, you know, I don't know you. What? Why are you doing this? Is there something yeah. you want to sell me? Yeah. <laughs> Is there potentially an agenda behind your behavior? Yeah. Yeah. No, cool. I think I think it's a it's it's a good thing to think about. Absolutely. Absolutely, and I I think we have. We've yeah, I think, I think we've covered it. To, yeah. yeah, exactly. Well, I can say I love you, John. I, I really love do. you too. I, I, love our, I love our friendship, and I'm very grateful that you're in my life. And uh, it's I enjoy our talks, and it's always very special. So, uh, Yeah, the same for me. Absolutely the same for me, Hoyt. Well, until so the consider next yourself time. lovable from here. On. <laughs> okay, I appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> okay, I'll send you a little certificate you put on the wall. John says I'm lovable. <laughs> okay, sounds good. Sounds good. And anybody right. that wants to send me ten dollars, I'll do this. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. We'll take we'll take it in that form as well. I hear you. I hear you. My oh goodness. dear. So yeah, great pleasure. Thank you very much. And okay, please, until the uh, next time. Until, until we meet again. So, all right. All the thanks, best. Bye-bye. Hi, John here. Thanks for watching. We'd appreciate it very much if you would click like, as well as subscribe, and click the bell for notifications. Every dollar helps, and we welcome new patrons on Patreon. We can make a one-off payment with any currency through PayPal. Thanks so much.